taking a look at a really interesting story. It's a story which Jesus himself tells. So obviously that alone should uh, pique our curiosity a little bit to kind of find out what Jesus is intending for us to learn, what he's trying to speak to us. And so I'm going to read the story to you guys. And as soon as I'm done reading it, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this uh, great story that Jesus has to tell us about a father and his murdered son. First one, chapter 12, says, And he began to speak to them in parables, or these are stories. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit, and he put a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to some tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took from him, they took, it, they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so, with many others, so they beat, some they killed, and he still had only one other. It was a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will then be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy the tenants, and then he will then give the vineyard to the others. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, that's Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told them this parable against them. So they left him and went away. God, we ask you that you would help us understand what this has to say. We pray more than anything, God, today, that this would not just be mere uh, mental simulation, that this would not just simply be study of the Bible, uh, but God, we pray that you would use this scripture, use this passage to open our eyes to uh, really, Jesus, the good work that you've come to accomplish for us on our behalf. God, that you would really stir up in our hearts affection, love for you, through this, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story that we've been basically following in the life of Jesus from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark is really a story in which Mark wants us to basically understand who Jesus is in light of history, in light of actual, factual events. The reason why this is really important and very significant for us is because for us, 2,000 years later, we have a propensity to basically want to design our own Jesus. We take bits and pieces of Jesus that we like, elements about Jesus that we find particularly appealing to us, and we piece them together, we add them together, we cut and paste and fabricate and manufacture our own little Jesus. And so for us, for some of us, that little Jesus is a Jesus who's really nice. He likes to pick up sheep, throw them over his neck, walk around, hang out with little children. He's very nice. Others of us have different types of Jesuses. Some of us like have this sort of you know, hellfire, brimstone, doctrinally, theologically centered Jesus who's very, very angry. Not very nice, but very angry all the time. And so what ends up happening for us is we have some sort of variations of Jesus that we create. The problem with that is that when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, the Jesus that we created actually can't help us. He can't support us because in reality, as I've been saying for the past several months, is that Jesus in reality does not exist. He's not real outside of our imagination. In other words, we made him up. He can't help us. And the problem when we do that is 
we will face life's challenges. And what God wants to do for us is he wants to demonstrate by way of revelation, showing to us who Jesus is so that we would allow God to define for us who he is. And this is important. Now, this doesn't mean that we're always going to understand every single thing that we learn about Jesus, nor does this mean that we are not going to basically find occasions of which we're troubled by who Jesus is. That's okay. A God that troubles us sometimes, a God that confuses us sometimes, means that he's a God that's bigger than us. Does that make sense? So if we're always getting Jesus, if we're always just like, oh, I get Jesus all the time, he fully makes sense to me. He's probably a made-up Jesus you created. A Jesus that is not full of mystery and moments and periods of his life and things that he does and ways by which he acts. A Jesus that doesn't shock you sometimes because of the things that he does. It's probably not a Jesus that you're honestly letting dictate to you who he really is. Jesus should shock us. Jesus should contradict us sometimes. Jesus should challenge us a lot. That's the true Jesus. And if you're having that experience with Jesus in the Bible, that's a good thing. Don't don't think that that's a bad thing because sometimes, like I said, we live in sort of this post-enlightenment era where we've been trained since our youth that we should wrap our minds around everything and fully get it intellectually, fully understand it. But when it comes to God, we're never going to fully get it. We're never going to fully, completely understand him because God says himself, my ways are higher than your ways. And if you have a God that you've figured him out completely, it's probably not the God that has revealed himself in the scripture by way of revelation. So with that being said, in the story that Jesus tells, he tells a story about a father. So there's a a cast of characters. I want to take a brief look at real quick. So we'll take a look at the next slide. And we'll kind of go through this sort of cast of characters that we see in the story. First of all, we see a landowner. Obviously, this landowner, no doubt, in the storyline is God. This is sort of a parallel type of a story. We call it a parable. Second thing is we see a vineyard. Now, this vineyard, no doubt, is probably a reference to Israel. And this is probably taken from an Old Testament passage in the, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, where the prophet Isaiah has this little story that he tells. It's a parable. It's a parable about a vineyard. In fact, it's very similar to this parable, except Jesus makes some modifications to it. So Israel is probably the vineyard, and this vineyard is situated within the world. And the whole point, the sole purpose of a vineyard is so that it would bear fruit. And the purpose of bearing fruit would be so that it can be given away, so that it can be purposeful, so that people can be blessed from someone who has a garden, Right? You know anybody like that has a garden? And sometimes they grow a lot of stuff, and then they give you, like, leftover kale or zucchinis or, you know, tomatoes. You, we always love those people, right? You're always like, these people are awesome. They're giving me, like, truckloads of apples and all sorts of cherries and all sorts of amazing fruits and vegetables. These are awesome people. And we always love those types of people, right? So God's saying that the vineyard was supposed to be Israel in the world being a blessing to all of the world. Third group is we see these tenants. This probably is a reference, no doubt, in the immediate sense to the religious leaders of the day. Um, this would have meant the Sanhedrin is what they're called. They're basically a collection of 70 men. They were men that overseen everything within Judaism. They had overseen the sociological, the political, the economic, the religious life of everybody within Israel. These guys were the highest, most powerful group of men throughout all Israel. Okay? So these would have been the tenants. But there was also a secondary way to, which, to view these guys because these would have been sort of the aristocracy throughout Israel's history. This would have meant 
kings and other religious leaders and the Levitical priesthood and other kings and other people throughout the history of the people of Israel. In other words, these would have been the people that would have been given the responsibility to oversee the people of Israel. The third or fourth group of people is we see these servants. Now, these are servants that the, uh, the master sends out to the people that are there on the vineyard to collect the grapes and collect the goods. And yet, uh, these are probably a reference to the prophets or the spokesmen, the people that were called by God to go out and represent him to speak. And this would have been probably symbolically rep- recognized or represented through like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel throughout the ages. And then finally, obviously, the final character is the son. No doubt, this is a reference to Jesus himself. But what I want to basically say is this, is that all in all, as I kind of look at this parable, this little story, to me, this story speaks really a lot about God. It's really a story about God, God's intention, God's purposes, God's plan, what God is at work doing. And yet, there are counter forces at work as well, or forces of creation that are at work, God, and forces of anti-creation at work, represented by way of the tenants, who are rather than entering into the work of creation of God, entering into the vineyard and being a blessing in the vineyard and using the vineyard and the fruit of the vineyard to give back to God and give back to the nation and give back to the nations, plural. They were taking it. They were hoarding it. They were using it as their own. Rather than being a blessing, they were basically being hoarders. And ultimately, it ends up coming out bad for these guys. So with that being said, recognizing, I believe, that this is really a story about God, I'm going to take a look at three things that it seems as if God is revealing about himself in this passage. The first of which is we'll take a look at the purposefulness of God Second thing, we'll take a look at the justness of God. God has something to say about the injustice that's going on here. And then third thing we'll take a look at is the love of God. Because we're told about this master in this story finally sends his only beloved son. So this isn't just like some, you know, austere, emotionless master, right? This isn't Donald Trump, all right? This is, this is, this is not Donald Trump. This is a guy who actually has feelings. He has a son. He loves his son. He has emotion, right? At least every time Donald Trump is portrayed, he's kind of this emotionless guy that can just go around saying, you're fired to everybody, heartlessly, carelessly, very coldly. But this guy in the story is portrayed as loving. So the first thing we'll take a look at is the purposefulness of God. God has a purpose here. And what we see here in the story is that what happens is we see the intentions of God, the creator, in creating this vineyard. We're told in the very first verse, first few verses, that he planted it, planted a vineyard. He protected it, meaning he put up walls. And ultimately, he put up a big tower. And the purpose of a tower was to basically provide another form or layer of protection. And then ultimately, we're told that he entrusted it. He had given it over to caretakers. So what had happened was this master owned all this property. And he basically cultivated a section of this property to be um, allocated towards being a vineyard. Uh, did everything that was necessary, that everything that was necessitated to make this vineyard successful. Planted it, used choice, uh, you know, vines. He protected it, put up walls, put up some sort of a tower in it, and then ultimately entrusted it over to caretakers. This would have been the stewards that we had seen basically identified in the story. In other words, what the master of the vineyard is basically intending is that he is hoping for this vineyard to bring forth fruit. That's his intention. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that's the intention of anybody who's ever taken upon himself the little challenge of growing a garden. All right? Told you this past few weeks 
that's what I've been doing in my backyard. I kind of created this garden. I started out, I don't know, sometime around late May, maybe June, and I built sort of this upright, standing up garden that was not on the ground because in my mind I'm thinking, okay, if I can get the thing up from the ground, it's not going to get bugs and snails and all sorts of things that destroy it. So I ended up watering it the first few weeks, watering it, going out there. In some ways it was kind of therapeutic. I'm like, this is awesome. These things are growing. It's looking good. Fruit's starting to come out on the vine. And yet, at some point, it just wasn't producing what I expected. It wasn't, I don't know what happened, it just sort of stopped. It was in sun. Everything seemed and should have been going right, but it stopped going right. So, past few weeks, I've gone out there a few times to kind of check it out to see if there's any, like, more peppers or zucchini or anything else that's out there. And some of the heads of cabbage that I found out there are, like, covered with this black stuff. I'm like, what is that? It's nasty. Closer, I looked at it. I don't know if it's aphids or what. It's something, it's just like absolutely covered with it. It's not what I intended. I was really frustrated. I was, I don't know what it was. I had these like visions of grandeur at the beginning of it, thinking like, I'll grow this amazing garden. I'll have enough. I'll give it away to the poor. I'll help people. Like, I'll eat good stuff. And then next door neighbors, I'll give them whatever I have left over. It's going to be awesome. It's a great way to just show kindness and be nice and whatever. But this whole thing has completely failed me. All right? Maybe, all right? I I grant it may have a lot to do with user error, but the fact of the matter is, it's not doing what I intended it to do. So at some point, I'm going to scratch the whole thing, overturn it all, completely start from scratch again next year if I don't give up. But the point of the matter is this. Every garden, every attempt at growing something like this, whether it be vine, fruit trees, whatever, is always for the purpose of growing fruit, for the benefit, to enjoy it, to eat the fruit, to eat the produce. That was the whole point. That's the intention. And this is the intention of God. That God originally, from the very beginning, intended that Israel would be his special people. That as they obeyed God, as they loved God, as they served God, they would be fruitful. They would be like a nation that people could see God. That they would point to God. And that they would find joy from God. That they would be a nation that took care of themselves. That they had natural built-in welfare systems. That the poor could be taken care of. That the orphans, that the, you know, the, the emotionally distressed, that the widows, the people that are basically without can be well taken care of. And that this would basically be like a city set up on a hilltop that when people saw it, they would recognize that there's some sort of bigger, larger purpose in life for this nation than just simply dog eat dog. Than just simply, you know, the, the weak will be destroyed and the strong will survive. Because that's basically, for the most part, the way this world works. But if this is the case, basically the next slide, what we'll see is everything boils down to simply this, is that if the vineyard belongs to God, then everything that we have is on loan. Just like these people were given a vineyard, they didn't own it, they didn't purchase it, it didn't belong to them, it was a gift from the master. And they were called to be stewards of it. And if this is true, then the way this parable gets implicated throughout the rest of everyone's life is that that means that God truly is owner, maker, creator of all things. That means that everything that you and I have is a gift from God given to us on loan. And that basically means that there is no such thing as mine. That the idea, the notion that says mine is something that is far-fetched or an illusion at best. So I'll give you an example of this. Oftentimes, the way that we live is we live with this mentality of things like my time, my money, my talent, my abilities, my goods, my house, my car, my stereo, my computer, my whatever. 
we live with this mentality that everything that we have actually belongs to me. When in reality, if what the story that Jesus is trying to convey is all of this is not true. It's, been a, it's a lie. It's something that we believe, something that we've thought that actually belonged to us, but it's really not true. I'll give you an example of this. You can observe this sort of in toddlers, and we think it's kind of cute, and it's funny when they're like two years old, 18 months, we're like, oh, it's not cute. They think the Legos belong to them. They think the toy store belongs to them. They think Target belongs to them. Huh, so cute. Like, aren't they adorable, right? But when that person turns into an 18-year-old, and they're like, mine, 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 and that person is still living at home, they're an annoyance, right? When that person's 28, and they're going around saying, mine, mine, that person is actually frustrating, and you want to stay away from them. When that person's 37, 47, that person becomes completely obnoxious because we know, all of us know, that that's not the reality. Let me give you an example of this. In just a simple, naturalistic way of looking at life. The simple fact of the matter is, is that everything in this life is in a constant state, constant trajectory, moving away from us. Everything. From relationships, to businesses, uh, to jobs that you are involved in, to looks, to wisdom, to intellect, to abilities. All of these things that some of you might find yourself at the you know, nice phase in life, maybe let's say you're in your early 20s, where you've got the looks right now, you've got the wisdom right now, you've got the abilities right now, you've got the intellect right now, and you've got the degree right now. They're all close to you right now, and you've got a lot of good friends. But what you'll discover that as time goes on, all of those things will begin to drift away from you, all of them. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I, you know, I'm 42 years old, all right? I've told you guys this before. I'm 42 years old, and, and I kind of had this discovery a couple years ago, which is kind of surprising to me. I told my wife, it's kind of shocking, tripping to me. All right. With the advent of Facebook, you know, you obviously make connections with some old people, friends that you've had, like, back in the day. And for me, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I went to high school at a school called Ocean View High School. And, you know, when I was in high school, I, I was a surfer. I grew up surfing, and surfers, at least me and my group of guys, like, we didn't really spend a lot of time on campus. We tried to spend as much time off campus as we could. Lunchtime, the, you know, the beach was literally right down the street from me, so every lunch, once I finally got my car uh, and license, I would just go to the beach every single lunch, and I would just hang out at the beach and... By that time I was a Christian, I would just read my Bible. But surfers never really hung out with football players or, you know, anybody that was, like, of significance, all right? So it's interesting for me, you know, 20-some-odd years later, looking at pictures of people in my high school that were the ones of significance. They were the best-looking girls. They were the strongest, muscular-looking dudes. They were the best football players. They were the ones that were, like, most likely to succeed, most likely to make something of their life. I had kind of this like, really weird epiphany, all right, that all of these people, and again, mind you, I hadn't really even gone to any reunions at all. So I, I had no way of connecting or seeing these people at all. And so I'm looking at Facebook. I'm looking at some of these people that I knew back in the day. Like last time I'd seen them, they were like, you know, 19 years old, and they're like the you know, hottest girl on campus, whatever. You're like, okay, yeah, she's beautiful. So 25 years later or whatever, I'm looking at some of these people. I'm like, I, I can't even see that person in there. Like, they're a different-looking person. They, they don't look like that person I remember from 20 years ago. And guys that were like studs, like super muscular, really strong, big football-type jock-type guys back in the day, they're not that anymore. 
In other words, all of the muscles, all of the strength, all of the might, all of the intellect, all of the good looks that these people had back in the day has over years slowly drifted away from them. They don't possess it anymore. But the same is true with everything. Friendships that we have. Everything is in a slow state of moving away from us. We're losing it all. All To me, the greatest relationships I have in my life is my wife and my two daughters. They mean more to me than anything. But the reality is, is that my oldest daughter is 16, and at some point we realize that she, at some stage in the game, is going to end up moving out, getting married, and that's not too far. My wife and I got married when we were 20 years old. So the reality is that if my daughter, for example, was following that same footprint that we set into, that means we have four years left with her. That freaks me out. That everything in my life, in your life, is in the slow pace of moving away from us. Gradually, slowly. When you're young, you don't recognize it. But most of us that are older, or most of us that might be in that age where we're a little bit older, I know that most of us in this church are young, and so you're still kind of like, no, I have it all. At some point, those of us that are older, we, we know something that maybe you guys don't know yet. You will learn it. It's a little dark, deep, nasty little secret. I'll just tell you right now. The fact remains that everything is slowly drifting away from you. All relationships will, sh- will change, will morph. You will lose some people that you will look at in your life right now and claim, these are my best friends, and I'll never stop being their best friend. At some point, they may be gone. At some point, they'll get married, and you won't have the same type of relationship with them that you have today. The job, the situation that you have right now, all of these things that we find so much hope and excitement in is slowly drifting away from us. All right? Everything at some point will be taken away from us. All right, let's pray, and we're going to dismiss you guys. All right? I'm just kidding. Like, wouldn't it be horrible if, like, that was where I just stopped the sermon? Like, we're done. Praise the Lord. You guys have lunch later. All right, so some of you are like, this, is, this sucks. This is really bad. Like, what a horrible life. And I came to church today. I didn't want to come. And life stinks as it is. And I'm more depressed than ever before. Here's my point. All I'm trying to say is this. Don't buy the illusion that everything you think you own, you own. It's not yours. You don't own it. It's a gift from God for you to steward. If God owns everything, if God is God, and he is owner of all things, then that means that everything you have by way of looks, by way of talent, by way of money, by way of treasures in your life, by way of anything else, time, all of it is a gift from his hands to you for you to be a steward over. Every last bit of it. And that's problematic for a lot of us. Because we bought into this lie that basically says whenever something exercises control over us, then we lose our freedom. We think the way to freedom is to be independent. That's the idea that we think. But the reality is none of us is truly, completely independent of anything. All of us, Jesus says, are a slave to something or somebody. Let me put it this way. All of us have a master passion, something that over has has an overarching effect, an impact, an impression, an influence over our life. Whatever that thing is that influences us, that impacts us, that we find comfort in, that thing, Jesus would say, is what masters you. That, by all intents and purposes, is what your God is. 
So the first thing I want to look at before we jump on to the next thing is the purposefulness of God, that God has a purpose for all these things and that ultimately what God's intention is was for that Israel to use what they've been given to sow their lives, to sow their treasures, to sow their talents back into the vineyard for the purpose of the blessing of the vineyard, that that vineyard would then be a blessing to the rest of the world. In the same way all of us have been given things, time, treasures, talents, things that God has given to us, it's on loan. We are not owners of it. We don't possess it. We have been beneficiaries of it and the purpose of it by God is so that we would use these things, our time, our treasure, our talents, our intellect, our abilities as a means of somehow sowing back into the vineyard, back into the purposes, back into the intention of this good God whose intention is to bless all people. But when we take these things as our own and we say, no, these are mine, I earned them, I deserve them, I'm entitled to them, this is what defines me and I will build my life on these things, then what will happen is not only will we not get those things, but they won't function properly. And we will be let down, and everybody else will be let down around us. And this is exactly where the people of Israel were. So the second thing that we begin to take a look at and see is the justness of God. The justness of God. And really, as we take a look at this, we need to kind of ask this question. Why would these men, who were entrusted with the care of the vineyard, why would they have not given fruit to the owner? Now, let me give you an example. As... Uh, we had dinner last night, and usually what we do on Saturday nights is a family dinner, and we talk a little bit about the Bible, read, read a passage and talk about it, we pray for people and so on and so forth. Last night we were talking about this passage, and one of the questions that I asked really was, as we were kind of looking at this, in some ways it's kind of silly to think, why would these guys not give to the owner what was justly due? The best way I can maybe modernize this and take a look at this, it'd be kind of like the house that we live in. We rent. We've rented ever since we've lived here. We've lived here for almost 20 years now. Um, we've lived in our house. We just celebrated six years of living in this house. Uh, we were on some great world records for a while where we were living in a house every two and a half years. That was horrible, yes. It was mainly when our kids were younger, but now that our kids are a little bit older, we don't have as much stuff to lug around, but the reality is, is we've lived in our house now for six years, and I was asking my daughters, I said, what, what would you think if somehow, rather than sending in the rent check, we just decided, you know what, we're going to commandeer this house as our own. We're no longer renters. We own this house now, and we just stopped paying our rent. And then maybe after a month, the landowner owner of the house would come to us and be like, oh, hey, I didn't get the rent check. Like, um, and he ends up sending one of his friends. All right? The guy who actually owns our house is a business owner. What if he sent one of the people that were working for him to the house, knocking on the door like, hey, uh, you know, Mike wants to collect his rent check right now, but um, I guess he didn't get it from you guys. And I open the door. I'm like, oh, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but we own the house now. It's our house. Later. Bye. Slam the door in his face, and he left. All right, he's going to go back to the landowner. Landowner is going to maybe come back, send another person. Maybe him not come back, send another person. And this other person comes back. And this guy, as he comes back, uh, knocks on the door. I open up the door, make it look like you're going to be coming in, being welcomed in. And I kick him in the shin and say, get out of here. This is my house. I own this. We declare that this is our house. We own it now. We're not going to pay rent. All right? Now the stakes are getting a little bit higher. All right, this keeps going on for a little bit of time. You get the idea, okay? This is where it's going. This is, you, some of you are like, that's a really silly example. Like, that's my point. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, no one in the right mind would ever commandeer a rental and say, this belongs to me now. No one would do that, right? Unless you take a look a little bit closer at the story and begin to realize that's exactly what all of us are guilty of. All of us. We have commandeered our lives as our own. We've taken what God created, 
we've taken what God has gifted, and we've taken what God has given over to us to be a steward to sow back into his vineyard for the blessing of other people, for the glory and the worship of God, and for our deep, satisfying joy. And we've commandeered it as unto ourselves, and we basically said, God, no. I won't give to you back what you have given to me, or it is mine. I own it now. I have basically staked my claim. This belongs to me now. This is the same type of situation. So the question really is this. Why would these men not do this? Why would they not give to God what rightly, justly belongs to God? Well, Jesus actually answers the question by asking a question. Later on in verse 10, he basically says this. Have you not read this scripture? And he quotes from an Old Testament passage out of the Psalms. And he says, the stone which the builders have rejected has actually become the chief cornerstone. And what's interesting about this particular verse is that this is what's called the messianic verse. In other words, it points to the Messiah, which Jesus is, in this case, the Messiah. But what Jesus, at the heart of this, is basically saying is that all of us have this propensity to basically build our lives on something else other than the cornerstone that is the right cornerstone. Now, some of us don't do a lot of building. We may not be very familiar with cornerstones, or another translation might be capstone. I'll take a look at both of them. A cornerstone was basically a stone that formed the very baseline or basis for every other part of a building. So back in the ancient days, they would use a a stone that was cut and quarried perfectly. It had to be perfectly straight, perfect angles, perfect 90-degree angles, and it was supposed to be without flaw. No cracks in it, nothing, because this was to form the baseline of the corner, and then everything else was to be built and stacked up upon this. But if you had a cornerstone that was not cut straight, then everything from that corner would basically go and form a wall that was not straight, or if the cornerstone had a flaw in it, then at some point, by putting the amount of weight on it, it would then crush it at some point, and the entire building would fall because of a flawed or failed cornerstone. Okay, that's cornerstone. A capstone, some of you might be familiar with some of the ancient, you know, some of you guys might be like architecture majors and all that, so you're probably familiar with a capstone. Basically, an ancient uh, Roman and Greek um, architecture, they would have sort of these archways, and in the archways, in the middle of an archway, you would have this, this major stone, this one big stone, and that was called the capstone, and they would put it there carefully, and basically that one stone would support these other stones that were forming this archway. So if you had a capstone that was flawed or had some sort of fracture or brokenness in it, then basically the more you would build upon that structure, the more pressure would come down upon that, and it would basically uh, cause it to become compromised, and it would break. So the point that Jesus is saying is that what's happening in Israel is that Israel is not looking at the true cornerstone. He's saying, I'm the true cornerstone. Rather than building upon me as a true cornerstone, Israel is building on false cornerstones. So this answers the question, why are these stewards not giving back to God what rightly belongs to God? Or let me personalize it. Why do we not give back to God what rightly belongs to God? Why do we commandeer our lives for our own, take them for ourselves, and use the things that we've been given, the talents that we've been given, the, talent, the treasures that we've been given, the abilities that we've been given? Why do we use these things for ourselves and basically move God out and not want to recognize God, not want to acknowledge God? Jesus' answer is very clear. It, it's simply because we have built our lives on an alternative cornerstone. We have taken something other than Jesus and we place it there as the very center point of our life. And then everything else from that stone begins to be built out upon that. And we do this with lots of different things. But here's a couple examples by which we can do this even within our own culture and our own age. We've talked about this before in the past. 
one of the things in California that can be a big cornerstone is beauty. There's a lot of stuff in today's culture that's about helping to promote, helping to prolong your beauty. I mean, that's what our, that's what our culture of California is really all about. We want to look really good. Or if we're going to get old, might as well look good while we're getting old, right? We want to look good. Or if your face can't look good, at least you can make your body look good by plastic surgery, by wearing nice clothes, doing things that somehow can make you look good. That's why one of the reasons you can be in the aisle line at Target, getting ready to check out, and you see all of these magazines, Cosmo, Cosmo Girl, all these things are basically Bibles. They're Bibles to tell you how to make certain that beauty is the cornerstone of your life. So if you build your whole life on this cornerstone, and everything in your life, this thing, this good thing, becomes an ultimate thing. Let me ask you, is there anything wrong with beauty? Beauty is not a bad thing. Beauty is a great thing. In fact, I'll prove it because God is beautiful. God is ultimate beauty. So beauty is not bad. But if we take beauty and we separate beauty from the beautiful one and we make beauty this ultimate deified thing in which we value as the ultimate thing in our lives and we build everything else in our life on that cornerstone, at some point, it will begin to fracture. It will begin to break. And when it breaks you will break. When you start losing your beauty, you will break along with that. We can look at strength. We can look at intellect. We can look at all sorts of different things of which we build our lives on, ultimate values by which we build our lives on. These are oftentimes the cornerstones that we build ourselves on. Some of us, it's like happiness. We just want happiness. We just want to be constantly entertained and satisfied. And if you build your life, the soul of your life, on that cornerstone, at some point it will let you down. And when it breaks, you will break. That's why Jesus says, unless you build yourself on me, everything else will crumble and break. This is the problem. This is the problem that all of us have. So the real issue that we have to deal with and ask ourselves is what, really what are the cornerstones that we are building our lives on? What are the good things, the really good things, that we've turned into ultimate things, ultimate valuable things in our lives in the place of God? And we build those things. We square our lives around those things. This is the issue. This is what was going on with these particular guys. Now what we go on to see is, and Jesus then asks another question, and I want to wrap it up very quickly with this, is that in this next question, basically Jesus asks this. He says, what should the owner of the vineyard do? Take a look in the next verse. He then says, he says, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will then give the vineyard to others. So this is what Jesus basically says. This is the right thing to do. This is what I describe in terms of the justness of God. God is just. We use that word a lot today. And basically what it means is justice is setting right that which is wrong. This is why when justice is done, this is what courts should be doing. Courts should be taking things which are wrong, things which are out of whack, things which are broken, and setting them to right. That's what justice is. And if you're a believer, if you love Jesus, you should care about justice. You should care about people that are being treated unjustly. We should care about things like this. Kids being taken from their home and being sold into some sort of sex trafficking. We should care about those things simply because it's wrong. It's not right. And so justice is the action of going about trying to undo that. So what we see here is that Jesus asked a very practical question. Okay, so these guys aren't paying rent. They're not giving the goods. Everybody knows the, 
a vineyard belongs to, you know, this master, and yet these people aren't giving him grapes. They're not paying their rent. They're not doing anything. They basically commandeered it and said, this belongs to us. And he's, they've actually been pretty violent. They have repeatedly uh, turned against all of the other servants that have been sent from the master, and they've just been rude. They have not been well treating those that have been sent, the servants. And so at the end of the day, he's asking the question, what should the master do? What's the right response? So here's the obvious answer that Jesus is going to say. He will come and he will destroy the tenants. And then ultimately he says he will then give the vineyard to others. But let's first of all take a look at the first response. He will destroy the servants. What's amazing to me about this is that Jesus is talking about God. Here's the thing that I've oftentimes realized, especially within our culture, is that we don't like to think of God as ever getting angry. The thought of God getting angry actually makes us very uncomfortable because we've created sort of a Santa Claus God. God that's always happy, is very jovial, is always just chuckling and doing nice, happy things and, you know, giving kids a little candy and just this is the type of God we've created. But the reality of what Jesus is saying is that, no, God is actually a just God. And when injustice happens, this God actually steps in and responds. And in this particular case, what is the just response from this God? It's to come to destroy those wicked servants and then to remove them off of the grounds of the vineyard and then give the vineyard to somebody else who would recognize proper stewardship. The fact of the matter is, like I said, we struggle with the thought of God being angry. We're really challenged by that. I mean, if you talk to most people and you ask them, like, what do you think about God being angry at sin, God being angry at injustice? I think most of the responses you get would be like, okay, I can understand God loving people and accepting everybody, but the thought of him being angry really simply troubles me. The problem with that is, is that we live within sort of a double standard. Because even though we can judge God and say, God should never get angry, simple question I would ask all of us is, do you ever get angry? Right? We all get angry. So it's kind of funny to me, because as I was thinking about this, we're ready to judge God for an emotion that we ourselves always have. I want to dissect this one step further. There's two ways to look at anger. There's an unjust anger, and then there's a just anger. We'll take a look, first of all, at the unjust anger. Unjust anger, I would say, is what most of us are all familiar with. All right? We are all familiar with unjust anger. If you ever gotten angry, you're like standing in line. I was with my wife a few days ago at Starbucks, and some dude stood in line, got in front of my wife. And I, and I, was, I, was, I was really frustrated. And I, I asked my wife, like, did that guy get in line in front of you? She's like, yeah, it's, it's all good. And in my mind, I'm like, it's not okay. This is not okay. Like, this is absolutely wrong. And I'm, in my mind, I'm like, you know, and again, I realize my wife, God's given me an amazing wife who's calm, and she's like, it's okay, Brian, it's cool. We're like, we're like three people back. It's not that big a deal. And in my mind, I'm like, I was wrong. Like, this guy took my space, my place in line. And we act like this all the time. You're driving on the road. Someone cuts you off. You become angry. You're standing in line at Ross. Someone cuts you off, takes your line, your place. We get angry. We get angry. The bottom line is this, is that most of our anger is classified as unjust anger. We get angry for stupid, trivial things. And yet we have the audacity to actually judge God because he gets angry. It's a double standard. 
All I'm simply asking you is be honest about the way that we classify this. That's it. The second type of anger is just anger. Just anger is when somebody gets angry at something that's just. In other words, an injustice is done. A child is taken from a village in Africa or some other place or part of the world, and they are basically abducted and forced into some form of slave trade. We can get angry about that. That's okay. We should get angry about that. A woman is raped. We should get angry about that. A a child is mistreated. A father abuses his wife. Uh, These are things that we should actually look at, have backbone over, and get angry over. These are just things to be angry over. But the point of the matter is, is that in the story, that this is a just situation. In the same way as we would look at it and say that if I just decided that my rental house belongs to me now, and I made the decision alone, unilaterally, and the owner just needs to deal with that, there are legal ramifications that he can follow through and he will win. And I will get in trouble for it. I will justly be booted out of the house and there will be a new renter, new tenant placed in it who will be more faithful than I. We can all understand that. So here's the issue. We see the sense of the justness of God. And so really at the end of the day, when I think about this, the idea of judgment, the idea of God judging justly those that have taken things from him and rather than using them as a means to bring blessing to the world and love and honor God and find joy in the things that God has given us, we've taken them for our own and we've been selfish and we've hoarded them and rather than giving praise and glory to God, we've, we've done these things. I can understand, it makes sense to me why there is something such as judgment from God. What doesn't make sense to me, what absolutely throttles my mind, is how God could actually give acceptance in heaven to people that have misused and abused and mismanaged good things that he's given to them. How can God do that? And that leads us to the final point that we see with regard to God, is we see the love of God revealed in the story. In verse 6, it says this, and he still had one other. Now again in the story we've seen kind of a repeated story, a repeated pattern that he sent servant after servant. Some of them have been mistreated, mocked, um, beaten, one was killed. And again, like I said, this was sort of the lineage of the prophets. Some of us can, you know, uh, we can read the Old Testament with sort of rose-colored glasses. We're like, oh yeah, those prophets, these guys are amazing. And you know, sometimes people are like, oh, it'd be awesome to be a prophet. Prophets was a horrible job. Like, like kids didn't grow up right, in the ancient Israel, like, one day I want to be a prophet. I want to tell people about God and get killed for it. Like, that was not any, on anybody's job description list when they were sitting down with their school counselor, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a prophet. No one wanted to do that. In fact, most of the prophets tried to get out of it. God's like, I want you to be a prophet. They're like, ah, I can't talk straight, and, you know, my eyes are crooked, and I'm illiterate, and God, do you think you can ask my brother, right? They try to get out of it because at the end of the day, being a prophet was not a good job. And this is what happened. was prophet after prophet that God sent to the people of Israel over hundreds of years, which speaks of the patience of God. God is insanely patient over and over and over again. God sent prophets, people who spoke, people who communicated about God and his grace and his kindness and his desire to forgive and wash. And, and re- as they returned to God, God would restore them. But they wouldn't. They, they didn't. Rather than, again, 
receiving the message of the prophets and saying, thank you for coming to me. I'm so appreciative. I completely forgot about God. I've taken everything that God has given to me and I've misused it upon myself. And rather than falling at their feet and saying, thank you, I appreciate you, good job, they, they, they punch him in the face and they send him back. And so finally, in the story, we're told that Jesus, as he tells, he speaks of an only beloved son. Now, this isn't a very interesting language that Jesus uses here because probably it harkens back to another story in the Old Testament of the Exodus. And this is the story in which God basically says the final plague in the Exodus was that firstborn son, the most beloved son. In fact, whenever you kind of think of the phrase like, which is this? Firstborn is a beloved. It's the same. If you live in a, uh, a male-dominated culture, your firstborn son is, by nature, your most beloved son. You love him, and you will protect him, and you value him above everything. Why? Because he's your heir to everything you own. And everything and every other son follows suit. So Jesus is probably using language that goes back to the Exodus, and I think he's hinting at the fact that what's about to happen is something akin to another Exodus by way of deliverance. And he says, finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And then they took him, they killed him, and they threw him outside of the vineyard. So I was kind of thinking about this. Jesus, when he describes this master as being a dad, I think he does this because he wants us to connect with this father. I think there's a sentimental purpose here. I have two daughters, like I said. The thought of me, if I had a son, of giving my son to a bunch of people that have actually mistreated everybody else I've ever sent them, and not only that, but killed one of them, the thought of God actually sending his son into something like that is either totally foolish. He's not thinking clearly. There's absolute just idiocy attached to this, if I can say that in you know, as clear ways I can. It just doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness why God would do that. Or the second thing is that God is completely unsympathetic and completely bloodthirsty and he's going to go complete Hunger Games style all over all these people. That's all that God has in his mind. In his mind, he's just done nothing but to intention complete bloodshed over all of these people. Or there's a third way. And the third way is, I think what he's trying to say very clearly, is that actually the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit throughout all eternity were actually co-conspirators in an act of redemption that was going to involve bloodshed, but not the bloodshed of the sinful, rebellious landowners or the land tenants, but of the landowner. And the reality is what Jesus is pointing to is that yes, a judgment is coming. But shockingly, the ones that will be judged, the one that will be judged is not what you've ever expected. Because in our minds, we would expect or suspect that justice must fall upon the evildoers, the wicked doers, the ones that have done wrong. They're the ones that should be kicked out of the vineyard. They're the ones that should have their blood shed. But in reality, what we're going to begin to see by the time we get to the end of the Gospel of Mark is that instead of Jesus coming to judge them, Jesus is coming to be judged for them. That Jesus is basically coming not to spill or shed their blood, but Jesus is going to come to have his blood shed. And not only that, but Jesus is coming not to cast them out of the vineyard, but ultimately he will be cast out of the city himself. As the Bible says, he was crucified on a tree outside of the city, which is where all the heretics and all the heathens 
and all the evildoers who are treated as such go. To the degree that you see that what Jesus is describing, that the one who has claim and true ownership of all things. See, let me try to break this down for you as best as I can. All of us are stewards. We don't own anything permanently. We may own it temporarily until the day you die or until something happens in your life and it's taken away from you. We are not full, complete, infinite owners of anything. But there is one who does own everything. The problem with us is we think we own everything. We think we own our looks. We think we own our jobs. We think we own our friendships. We think we possess our marriages. We think we possess our children. We think we possess our houses, our vocations, our intellect, our job, our wisdom. You get the idea. But unless you see that on the cross, the one who truly possesses everything, all wisdom, all power, all beauty, all might, all riches, everything, willingly give it all up for you who thinks you possess everything so that you and all of us who have been rebels can actually be brought into a place of being forgiven. And then Jesus says the most stunning thing of all, he will actually give the vineyard to people who didn't deserve it. By taking their place. Absolutely shocking. But the very things that we long for and live for oftentimes and we build our lives upon, we make them the cornerstones. That Jesus comes and says, if you live that way, you will be crushed. If you live that way, at some point when those things break, and they will, when they go away from you, and they will, when your beauty fades, and it will, and your relationships move away, and they will, and your health fades away, and it will, when all these things go away from you, you will crush with it. Or you can build your life on me, who was crushed for you, so that when life crushes you, you will be able to stand. Because I bore the penalty for you. I was crushed in your place. I was stripped of everything that I own, so that you who thinks you own everything could be actually given an inheritance, given a life. And I want to finish with some closing thoughts. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to finish with this. But I want you to think about just some takeaway things to chew on about this. Because if this is true, if it's true that this is what Jesus did, and he frees us from these things, what that means, for example, the time, our treasure, and our talents, if our treasure, our money, is not our final God, if it's not the thing that we should build our life upon, if it's not the thing that gives us our identity, if it's not the thing that sculpts and shapes out who we are, but if God is, what that means is that money can just be money then. We can actually use money. We're not bound by money. We're not a slave to money. We can actually use money to sow back into the kingdom, to sow back into the vineyard, to give away. Money actually becomes an object now that I can use to bless other people. Some of you have a lot of it. Some of you have been given more money than, have to, than you have time. And you can use that money to sow back in other people's lives. Maybe you've been someone that has been the recipient of someone giving you a gift of money. It'd be some, you know, gift card or something like that. You're like, this is awesome. I can go out to eat. I can get some Starbucks coffee. I can do something. Nice, because someone was so generous to me. This was awesome. 
when we see those types of things and we're recipients of those types of things, what we're tasting is just a little snapshot of what Jesus is calling us into. But the only way that can happen is if you're free, if Jesus is your cornerstone. And as he's your cornerstone, you can actually use your treasures as a means to bless other people. Your time. Some of you have more time than you have treasure. And you can use your time as a means of blessing other people. When we have things that are needed within the church, things like helping out in children's ministry, serving, giving your time away, helping out people that are hurting, that are going through tough circumstances in their life. We've got a big buddies program that helps out. We match you know, kids with other people in our church that are going through tough times, at-risk kids, to, to have someone to study with and to play ball with or do something nice with their life. You can invest your life in someone else's. You've got time. You can invest it. But if time is your God, if time is the thing, the most valuable commodity of your life, and you build your whole life on time, what happens when you start losing it and you lose your identity? But if God is your cornerstone, time is just something now you're free to give away. It isn't enslave you. You own it. It doesn't own you. Jesus wants you to be free. Look, the bottom line is this, and, and I'm done. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be free. But for some of us, that means we've got to confess whatever that cornerstone is that we're building the rest of our life on. We've got to confess that. We've got to recognize that. That we've built our life upon a false foundation. And that's what's crushing us. False expectations, false ideas, false hopes. We've created our own Jesus. And when life's gotten tough, that Jesus let us down because he doesn't exist. Or we can turn to Jesus who gave his life for you, who loves you, who used his power to help you and welcomes you to sow your life back into his vineyard to be part of this plan of redemption, this plan blessing, this conspiracy of kindness. That's what he's doing. He invites you into that. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish with a couple songs of just worship. We'll partake of communion if you'd like. If you're family here and you'd like to bring your kids in here for worship and have them partake of communion with you, that'd be great. Um, if not, don't, don't let your kids back, be back there too long. Make sure you pick them up at a, at a reasonable time. We're going to sing. In fact, I want to invite you guys to all stand, we'll sing together, and worship together. I'm going to pray over you guys. We'll sing. And really, at the end of the day, if God is God, what should our worship be like? Like, honestly, if God really is God, if he's not just some sort of, like, distant, far-off deity that just gives us little, little tips on how to live our life and feel a little bit better, but if he is indeed a king, a sovereign, a king of all kings, a king that actually gives everything away so that you who have nothing in reality can be given everything. Forgiveness, peace, shalom, joy, a home, life, instead of death. What should our just response be to that king? God, right now we just uh, ask you that you would help for us to check out our hearts just to make sure that our response is in proper sync with the revelation of who you are. Just help us to worship you now.